Well, good morning. I am glad everybody found us. That is excellent. Hopefully putting this back here doesn't mess it up. We'll see. <laughs> um, so how was your homework this week? Anything that stood out? Sandy. Oh, yeah, so, <laughs> no, I, I just, Yes. Um, and uh, it's so good to remind ourselves that that we have nothing to fear because fear right. plays a big part sometimes in our lives. You know, not that we're scared, but that we fear things in our mind and stuff like that. And that we have Christ who died for us. We have the Holy Spirit who lives with us, who interprets for us. We have. Christ who interprets for us, you know, and who can be against us? Who can be against us when God is with us? Right. You know, that's just yeah. Great. <laughs> exactly. Anybody else? Yeah, this is definitely one of the passages that we hear quoted a lot. When you think of Romans, these are some of those verses, verse 26, for we do not know what to pray for as for, let me start that again. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And then 828, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and were called according to his purpose. And 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 37, we are more than conquerors. 38 and 39, for neither life... For neither life nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. You know, many of these verses are familiar. These are the ones we hear a lot. But usually, these are verses we hear one at a time, and not necessarily all put together. And so, so today, we're going to have a little bit of a longer lesson time because I didn't want us to pull out just one or two of these. I wanted us to look at it as a whole. I wanted us to see how they build on each other. Um, so we're going we're gonna to look at the why and the how of these familiar verses. So last week, uh, Elizabeth shared with us about the first 17 verses of Romans 8. She shared about there being no condemnation, about life in the spirit versus the flesh. This week, we will continue those ideas a little as we look at, at uh, in a nutshell, look at suffering. So um, Romans 8, 18 through 25. Subjected to futility, 
not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruit of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So typically what we've seen is Paul asks a question and then he answers the question. This time he failed to ask the question. He didn't ask it directly, but what that, that unwritten question here is, is it really worth it? He's saying, is the inheritance worth the hardship and the heartache? And in verse 18, Paul says it absolutely is. He writes of a glory that is to be revealed to us. That's that glorious inheritance. And so if if we pause and just think about that word glory, uh, in Greek, it is doxa. Probably heard doxology, right? That same root. Um, It's a divine and heavenly radiance, perfectly holy, dazzlingly beautiful, Uh, Vine's Expository Dictionary says in the New Testament, it's an appearance commanding respect, magnificence, and excellence. So when we think about this glorious inheritance, this glory that is to be revealed to us, what does it look like? Any ideas? Any thoughts? What's that glorious inheritance? To be with him. Eternal life. Yeah, exactly. We're going to be safe from ourselves from our sins. <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's a renewal, a restoration. It's, it's fully redeemed. It is us being fully conformed to the likeness of Christ. And so Paul talks about some groanings. Uh, he, he gives us three of them. We've, we see two in the passage we just read. So what is groaning first? In, it's in verse 22. Creation. Creation is groaning. I gave somebody Genesis 131. And so what, when God finished creation, what did he say? It was very good, right? But now, in verse 22 of, of Romans 8, we see creation groaning. It's no longer very good. Nature shared in the fall of Adam. And it, it, it being creation, creation is alienated from both, both us and from itself. 
Timothy Keller says it is not as great or as beautiful as it was meant to be. Amen. <laughs> and so when you think back to Genesis 1 and 2, we saw perfection in life. And now our world is marred by death and decay, pain and suffering. In this creation, no experience is untainted by pain, even if it is only the pain of knowing that that experience can't last. There are five words that Paul uses in this passage to describe the plight of creation. It's not quite a, a list, like Paul sometimes just gives us a list. Not quite a list, but, um, but there are five, five words that he uses. He, he says, um, it's suffering, futility, bondage, corruption, and pains. Uh, the word in the ESV for futility is also translated as frustration in some place, some versions, or vanity. Uh, this is the same word that is used in Ecclesiastes when uh, Solomon is saying the the world is, you know, it's uh, just just worthless. Life is life is futile. Um, Blue Letter Bible defines that word as what is devoid of truth and appropriateness. It's a moral depravity. So we see these words about creation. We see how imperfect and how bad it is. And yet we still see beauty in it. Uh, I was driving home yesterday with, with my kids, um, with the two older ones, because Abby was still at dance class, but we had to bring the other two home from town to, uh, from theater. And just looked up, and there was just this gorgeous pink across the sky. And it made me think of Diane and her pictures that she takes over her family farm that I love. I love it when she does because she posts these pictures on Facebook, and it's such an encouragement to just look at the beauty of creation. But that beauty, I mean, we just, we just had those words, suffering, futility, bondage, corruption, pains. That's our creation, and yet we can still see the beauty in it. They truly, these, these pictures that you think of, these sunsets, or um, Catherine went out, she got a new camera for Christmas, and so she went outside and was just taking some pictures to experiment with her camera and was just enthralled with, look at this piece of wood. And just the, was, was looking at her, went to look with her camera, but ended up just being amazed by the, the intricacies on a piece of wood, on a log. Um, the, we see all these, terrible things about the world we live in, and then we see this beauty. Uh, Warren Wiersbe says, one day creation will be delivered and the groaning creation will become a glorious creation. So you think about those beautiful things, those sunsets, those sunrises, those whatever, the flowers that some people can grow but not me. Um, and, we, and, and when we Consider the majesty and greatness of the oceans, the mountains, the forests, 
and everything else now, it staggers the mind to imagine what the world will be like when it's free of itself. I mean, just think about that for a second. When we look and see the beauty of a fresh blanket of snow glimmering in the sunlight, or as we are watching the sunrise as we're driving our daughter to school for an FCA meeting before, before school starts, we see that sunset that makes us pull over to the side of the road and snap a picture. These are moments when we have to just stop ourselves and just say, and yet this is a fallen and groaning creation. This, the, the, and we have, we have so much more to look forward to. And so, um, yeah, just, it should amaze you. You should be in awe of what God can do and what that perfect creation is like. Uh, that we that we lost in Genesis uh, Genesis three, and we th think about the the groaning of of creation, and our initial question of is the groaning worth it? And Paul, of all people, a man talking about childbirth, right? When I was pregnant with Andrew, I ended up with preeclampsia. I was induced. But because my blood pressure was so dangerously high at the moment, they gave me an epidural even before they gave me the Pitocin to start labor. They didn't want me to feel a thing because it would have made my blood pressure go really high. And it worked. I didn't feel a thing. <laughs> then came Catherine. I was scheduled to be induced with her because she was measuring big. 38-week ultrasound was over nine pounds. According to the ultrasound, thankfully she wasn't quite that big. Uh, I ended up going into labor on my own, and while the epidural worked at first, it wore off and the reload didn't take. I laugh now <laughs> because the doctor at one point was there repositioning, you know, the awkward moment where they're like, okay, everything's revealed to the world, right? You're going to put your put your leg up here in the stirrup so then it's even more revealed to the world. And he says, so the doctor says, okay, we're going to lift this leg and put it in this stirrup. And I go like this. And he goes, oh, that epidural really didn't work, did it? <laughs> nope. <laughs> Thankfully, each of my children, three pushes and I was done. And so that was glorious. Um, but well, it's, it's my birthing hips. <laughs> uh, so my mom was in the room at, bef before she was just checking on me before the delivery actually happened. And, um, she was, when the doctor came in and said, okay, it's time, she was ready to leave. And I was like, you can't leave. This was with Catherine, you can't leave. Like I needed both of them side on either side, Ray on one side, my mom on the other, holding my hands, giving me encouragement because that pain is real and it is hard. But then those three pushes and it was done and there was that glorious child I had, I, it was completely worth it. All that groaning 
was completely worth it. And so that's what, that's what Paul's trying to say. When, when he's talking about um, creation groaning. And then there's the next groaning that's found in verse 23. And so who in verse 23, who does it say is groaning? We are. We as believers are groaning. And we groan for the same reasons that creation groans. We shared in the fall of Adam and we long for that perfection to return. Uh, but then this verse also tells us that we have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. What's first fruits? Not a, it's not a phrase, a, a word that we use all that often nowadays. What is meant by first fruits? Exactly. That's why we do this. <laughs> first fruits was by definition the first of the crop. That was the indicator of how good the whole crop was going to be. That was how they would know, the farmer would know, this is going to be a good year. It would give them a taste of what it was to come. And so the first fruits of the Spirit is that foretaste of what is to come based on the small piece of the blessings of heaven that we have already received. So think about it this way. Ironically, this is what I'm making for dinner tonight, too. When I make spaghetti and meatballs for dinner, I used to make homemade meatballs. My kids wouldn't eat them any longer, and so now I have to do store-bought. But I would make them like from scratch meatballs, right? And you would make them in the morning, and you put, put them in the oven for a little while and do all this, and then, uh, the spices and the meat bringing together that flavor. Then I would place, place them in the crock pot with my homemade sauce and it would simmer all day long. So then the flavors could just meld together really, really well. You know, crock pot cooking is excellent. My house would smell amazing all day long. And I couldn't wait for dinner time to come. Like all day long. Oh, I can't wait. That small taste, which was a smell, of, of what was coming was so enticing and so exciting to me that I just couldn't wait. And that's, that's the same idea that Paul is trying to tell us. That small taste of what we have already received from the Holy Spirit is what makes us long for the perfect redemption that we're going to receive in the end. It's just a taste of that completion, that total freedom from the effects of sin and death. And then we move past that first fruits portion of the verse and we see that we are awaiting adoption as sons or daughters in our case. But Romans 8:15, who has that one? And so verse 15 that we looked at last week tells us we've received adoption as sons, but now we're, 
we're waiting eagerly for adoption as sons. Um, verse, um, Timothy Keller says, we are legally adopted, but we have not yet received the fullness of family resemblance and not yet enjoyed the final celebration of our status. We are waiting for the adoption climax. Blue Letter Bible for that particular phrase, adoption as sons, says it's the blessed state looked for in the future life after the visible return of Christ from heaven. It's just another idea that the best is yet to come. But we are saved by the hope of waiting for that climax. And so Titus 2.13 We know that we are not what we one day will be. We know that we do not already have all that one day we will have. We know that all of our best days lie ahead of us and that one day all of our painful days will lie behind us. So we wait eagerly and we wait patiently, knowing that the pain will pass and that this life is not all that there is. And then um, that finishes that section. Turn my page. Um, and then we see another groaning in uh, verse Romans 8, 26 and 27. And so who is the final groaning coming from? The Spirit. The Holy Spirit is groaning. Now, the Holy Spirit is not groaning because he fell with Adam. <coughs> the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity, not groaning because of the fall. He is groaning for us. He is groaning on our behalf. The Holy Spirit, as part of the Trinity and alongside the rest of the Trinity, is concerned about the trials that we experience. What a beautiful reminder for us. And so, so the Holy Spirit comes as comforter, um, and prayer is one of the one of the many ways, but one specific way that the Holy Spirit helps us. And so even when we have no words to pray, we still need to pray. When we are grieving a deep loss, when we are faced with a life-changing decision, when we are confronting our failings, we may not know what to pray, but the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Just as a point of clarification, I have had people ask the question, this is not saying that people should have a private prayer language and all those things. Not at all what Paul is trying to say. Just push that out of your mind and trust me. Um, so, but but this, is, this is all about those moments 
when all you know to do is to cry out to God, but you have no idea what to ask. Morgan? Yes. Um, this has brought me comfort. Sometimes you pray for things for years. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's sometimes it's not in it's not a new thing. It's something that you've been praying for that you just need you just need the Holy Spirit to intercede on your behalf and also, and do that. I think the words that we say the Holy Spirit is taking them and he speaks to God for us. Yeah. That we cannot we, we yeah. just don't have in us the proper speaking to go directly to God, but we do go directly to God. Right. But he is the one who is taking our words and going to God. Yes, exactly. The right that's right she doesn't mean that she doesn't want that that's right the the holy spirit knows our hearts the holy spirit knows our motives there is a great comfort in knowing that what i i it has come up a number of times us coming to mount calvary we um we had left our church in mannheim um, Ray was pastoring the church in Mannheim and came, um, <laughs> we came to Mount Calvary so somebody would stop asking us to come to Mount Calvary. Um, well, you came but, to rest. Well, we yeah. did. We came to rest. That worked out really well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but our, first, our first Sunday coming, um, poor Jared Greist. He happens to pull into the parking lot at the same time we do. And he grabs somebody else to show Ray where to take uh, Andrew and Catherine because they were in the one building. And then he takes me to show me where to take, uh, to take Abby. And then he asks a simple question, what brought you here? And all I could do was just cry. Aww. So poor Jared. <laughs> I have thanked him a number of times and apologized even more. <laughs> but, but that was one of those moments when we were completely lost. We had no idea where God was leading us. We knew he let, led us to leave Bethel. And that was the extent of our knowledge. But I remember then, a couple of months later, driving home and just all of a sudden feeling this complete peace and comfort that this was home. That it wasn't, we were, because we were planning to move back to Kentucky when summer hit. And, and here it is, this is home. And I knew in that moment that that was the Holy Spirit interceding for me when I had made, I had made my, my mind up that this was not home, but the will of God was for us to stay here and gave us, I mean, <laughs> our prayers were God, just do whatever, and then when summer comes, we'll, we'll head back to Kentucky. 
Um, and, and long story of the way that God closed those doors as well um, after he assured me that it was home, but, but knowing with confidence that I hadn't known what to pray, but the Holy Spirit prayed it for me, and that meant it was the will of God, I mean, that was an amazing feeling to have, right? That's, that's the Holy Spirit. He can take our groanings that we were groaning before, and then he, he groans on our behalf, leading us to God's will for us. And then we hit uh, Romans 8, 28 through 30. These verses give us a promise that transforms the way, or should transform, the way that we face the good, the bad, and the failings. It leads us to gratitude and joy. I, I, you know, <laughs> you read it and it's, we know that uh, all things work together for good. Um, it is God at work to make good things. They don't work together on their own. We have established that creation is not a good place. Right? It is God working in all things. And then the second part it removes fear and anxiety when we when we when things go wrong there are no accidents right all means all it's not fate it's not chance god is at work in the flip of a coin you know you think about the old testament when they would they would draw lots they knew that when they were drawing they weren't just taking a chance they knew that as they were drawing, that God was in control of who got which thing. They were just allowing God to reveal his will. Uh-huh. That's right. Yes. Yeah, knowing that God has a perfect plan and that God is making all things work, then we know that our suffering is part of God's plan and it lets us see God's purpose in our difficulties. It gives us confidence, the third thing, it gives us confidence that we cannot ruin God's purpose for us, God's good purpose for us. God weaves our sins and our failures into our ultimate good. Isn't that wonderful? It's not an excuse for our sin, but it gives us a chance to see that God is working through our sins. 
But then we see who it is that benefits from this, this great promise. It's those who love him, who have made a commitment to God, and those who are called according to his purpose. And that's, that's a, a phrase about relationship. So it's, there's commitment and relationship. If it's just for Christians, that leads us to the opposite question, or it leads us to question the opposite of this. Is it, is it the opposite for non-Christians? And so we got to think all the way back to Romans 1, and I gave somebody Romans 1.24. Remember all those things when it was, you deserve the wrath of God, right? That's what, that's what non-Christians get. Um, in some cases, what Paul is telling us is that one of the worst punishments that sometimes God can give to people is the desires of their heart, of their sinful hearts. He lets them have what they want. You know, when we, what we believe is that God is in control of everything. Non-believers see it as I am self-made. I am in control of my destiny. Good things happening to non-believers harden their hearts. It increases that selfish character in them. When you stop and think about it, these good things are really not so good. Timothy Keller says it is not as important to change our circumstances as it is to change our heart's attitude and stance toward them. It is only if we believe, meditate on, and live out of, of Romans 8.28 that we will be able to meet, the, meet with triumph and disaster and treat them both the same viewing them as circumstances that as we love the God who has called us to know him as father, he will work in and through for our ultimate good. But I didn't have Paula read just verse 28 because with verse 28, we can't read 28 without including 29 and 30. Because 29 and 30 is what tells us what that good truly is. God's definition of good is greater and higher than ours ever tends to be. That good is our ultimate and final sanctification. It is character change. It is helping us to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. God has a master design and he is smoothing and shaping us and polishing us to fit into that design. I encourage you to th this week to reread this. The, I mean, the whole chapter eight is phenomenal, but, but particularly these verses and think about these in terms of that glorious inheritance. Um, then we have Romans eight thirty one through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is 
not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This whole section shows us that we cannot be separated from the love of Christ. And it and Warren Wearsby gives us five ways to prove it. So the first one comes from verse 31, and it's that God is for us. He says, the believer needs to enter into each new day realizing that God is for him. There is no need to fear, for his loving father desires only the best for his children, even if they must go through trials to receive it. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Jeremiah 29, 11. And that was the New American Standard Version. Um, but then in verse 32, so the second thing, the second proof of this is Christ died for us. While we were sinners, God gave us his best. And now as his children, will we not do even more? I don't have us reading it, but in Matthew 6, I believe it's 25 through 34, but that is not what I wrote down on my paper. Um, Jesus uses a similar argument encouraging us about not worrying. Um, if God gave us his best when we deserved his wrath, What's he going to give to us now that we, I mean, we still deserve his wrath, but now that we are justified. And then third, as verse 33 reminds us, God justified us. And remember, when we are justified, we are declared righteous. And Satan wants to accuse us. But as Warren Wiersbe says, God will certainly not accuse us since it is he who has justified us. For him to accuse us would mean that his salvation was a failure and we are still in our sins. Understanding justification brings us peace and it never changes. Fourth, in verse 34, we see that Christ intercedes for us. Interceding means that Christ represents us before the throne of God instead of us representing ourselves. When we hire a lawyer, the lawyer intercedes for us instead of us having to stand in front of a law, in front of a judge on our own, understanding all of the law. Christ does that for us. 
And then finally, the last, uh, the last verses remind us that Christ loves us. Like we said earlier, we need trials and temptations for our spiritual growth. And those trials are for us, not against us. And we endure those trials for his sake, and he gives us the power to conquer. Not even just conquer, he says more than conquerors. So we're like super conquerors. We have victory and more victory because of Jesus. And so ladies, Romans 8 teaches us a lot. And I just barely scratched the surface. But we are completely victorious. We are free from judgment, free from defeat, free from discouragement, and free from fear. And we need to live like it. So next week, we will look at Romans 9, 1 through 29. So take some time to observe it. Take some time to think about what difference it should make in your life. And then I'm not sure how we're doing our small groups, like where we're meeting with our small groups or anything like that. So we'll have to sort of figure that part out. <laughs>